Hey Logo Geeks, Ian Padgett here and this week I'm excited to be interviewing Ruth Kedar, designer of the Google Logo. But before we dive into the interview, I want to thank FreshBooks who has sponsored the Logo Geek podcast. FreshBooks is an invoicing and accounting software designed specifically for freelancers and small business owners where you can create professional looking invoices in 30 seconds and quickly file your expenses so that it's all nicely organized, ready for the tax season. You can try FreshBooks free for 30 days just by heading over to freshbooks.com forward slash logo geek and be sure to enter logo geek in how did you hear about section to get started so as mentioned this week i'm really excited to be interviewing ruth kedar the designer of one of the most recognizable logos on the planet the google logo in 1999 when ruth was teaching design at stanford university she was approached by two students to design a logo for their new startup business. Those students were Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the founders of Google. In this week's episode, we have a deep dive discussion about the Google logo, how it came to be and why the decisions were made to form the logo that we all know well and see on a daily basis. This is a really fascinating interview jammed full of insight. So let's just jump straight into this. Here is the interview with Ruth Kedar. I understand that when you worked on the, the Google logo, the company was an unknown business at that time, but now it's become one of the world's most valuable companies. And the logo that you worked on has become one of the most recognizable in the world, which is it's incredible to think that. Can you tell us the, the story of how you was able to work on the Google logo? So I was uh, teaching at Stanford at the time, and I uh, was teaching design uh, both for the art department and mechanical engineering product design. And actually, the course was open for students uh, all across. And I had a friend who was doing his uh, postdoc at uh, Stanford, and he was uh, part of the Center for Design Research, where he was doing most of his work. And he had uh, two uh, doc uh, students at the time who were starting this company, and uh, he was friend with them, and uh, they were looking for somebody to help them with their branding. And so uh, Sian Tan, uh, who was my friend, uh, decided that it would be a good uh, match and perhaps introduce me to them. And I got an email from Larry Page asking me if I would be interested in meeting and talking about their company. And that's how it started. It started with a conversation with Larry and Sergey, and uh, we went from there. Wow. Hearing this now, those names, uh, this sounds almost like the opportunity of a lifetime, but I totally understand at that point, this was a startup and they were just students. But anyway, I'm keen to dig into this more if you're able to. Can you share with us what happened after that first discussion? 
Yeah, so actually there's an interesting fact that when uh, they spoke with me, I was not the only person that it was speaking with. They were looking at other designers and uh, we had a lot of conversations before they decided that they were going to go with me. And I think that one of the reasons that they decided to proceed uh, with working together is because of uh, the the approach, was which was both broad and deep. I really wanted to get a sense for uh, who they were, the company that they were building, where they were building it for, what was their vision. And uh, we had really interesting conversations. And of course, in the, um, uh, in the process, uh, there were all kinds of um, possibilities presented. And the way that I approached this, and actually the way I approach it then, is not very different than the way that I approach uh, design today, is that every single time I have a conversation, uh, it means that my understanding broadens. But in the same way that my understanding broadens, uh, the questions that I still have uh, also grow. And so every single time that I come back with a presentation, which means I'm translating what I understood, what I've given from them into a visual language. So it's almost a translation here. Uh, but this visual language is developing its own vocabulary. And the purpose of these presentations is actually to, uh, very much like Alice in Wonderland, I need to see uh, what I say to know what I think, is that sometimes when you present something, it makes uh, the client or the person on the other side pause and think a little bit deeper into what really do they mean? Is this going in the right direction? Does this open some avenues of thought for them? And and so every presentation is an opportunity for them to kind of hone their thoughts and for me to learn more and understand more where it is that we need to go. So, of course, there were a lot of different um concepts that were being presented and every single one of them helped us through this path together so that we were both getting a clearer vision of what it is that we were working towards. And I think that in many ways, um, the fact that uh, this logo has become so incredibly uh, famous and ubiquitous uh, lays entirely with the success of Google and what Google has become. But in my, um, in my uh, opinion, one of the uh, successes as a logo design is that we were talking with a company that was extremely small. It was starting. They had a vision that was very long term. But at that time, we didn't know what Google was going to become. I think I didn't know. They didn't know. And the fact that it served the company for 15 years as it went from a handful of employees when I was talking to them to tens of thousands, right, and went from being uh, not only primarily but solely a <clears throat> search uh, engine company uh, into 
a plethora of different fields uh, is kind of a testimony that these very early conversations were able to create something that transcended that vision and help them uh, continue using that uh, abstraction into, uh, you know, and apply that to the services as they were developing and becoming so much larger than we envisioned at the time. Yeah, absolutely. This is really fascinating. Um, so based on that early vision and the the discussions you had. Could you share with us the reasons why you made the design decisions you did? Like what's the reasons why you used the font that you selected and why why did you decide on a, a different color for each letter? Well, so let's start from the typeface. So get to the colors in a minute. So you have to remember that in 98, when we were talking uh, about Google, the landscape was very different. We were uh, starting uh, to use the internet more broadly, right? And um, in some ways, uh, design on the internet at that time was uh, very uh, crude uh, because uh, designers who had been went, uh, working in print for so many years had a whole history of the developing uh, development of uh, uh typefaces, right, uh, due to the different instruments that we used in order to create writing systems, right? So starting from uh, tablets and going into paper and then changing of pens and creating cursive once you had the uh, quill pen and so on and so forth, right? And then typesetting and so on. But once you came to uh, the internet, we were talking about pixels and there was still a lot that was not quite understood how uh, we didn't have uh, great means of representing type. And in some ways, um, there was a, a little bit of a learning curve. And the things that were presented were either very straight um how can I say it? Very straight uh, representations of print on the screen, right? Which didn't work so well. And on the other hand, we had all kinds of really wacky um, typefaces, almost like you were kind of hand drawing something and not thinking it through. And so there were these two schools trying to come together, the very traditional on one hand and something that was completely different coming on the other hand. And one of the things that I was thinking about this new medium, and it was getting better and better, and we already had laser printers, so we were able to have, you know, curves and not be completely pixelated. But one of the things that I was thinking about search is that search is a really interesting thing because this is where past and future meets. You come in with a question, right? And so you're looking into past uh, solutions so that you can solve today something that you're going to do in the future. So there is this wonderful continuous story here. And I thought I was always re really interested in 
typography and the history and development of typography. And I thought that if we were completely going to abandon the history, we were going to be doing a disservice to this actually a service that we are providing, which has this really interesting tie. And so I I looked at a lot of different fonts, and I went both serif and sans serif, and I was trying to find something that was both uh, traditionally tied to the, the beautiful fonts in the past and also uh, had a very current and uh, in some ways uh, surprising ways. And uh, when I came upon uh, the font Catol, uh, I really loved the way that it had these uh, very elegant stems and ascenders and descenders and also had uh, this... Um, these serifs that were very, very precise. And I wanted something that when you looked at it, it was very clear that it's something you hadn't seen before. And every single time we are developing a logo for a company and we're working with typography, it's really important to look at what are the letters that uh, create the name for the company or for the client at the same time that we're looking at the deeper meanings and the interpretations and the vision and all of that. And, uh, you know, the uh, lowercase g of uh, the kettle was so incredibly unique and it was sitting so perfectly in the Google Word that it made really sense to actually use that font. And I was really happy that they actually went for that and not for some of the other options that were being presented because again uh, what is that hindsight is 2020 we didn't know that we are going to have the google doodles but the fact that these letters were individually so uh unique really allowed for these fantastic variations that could be totally out there and you could always still see the logo as this underlying structure uh, beneath it. Mm. So, so that's kind of the, excuse me, the font and the typography behind it. The colors were uh, a kind of an interesting exercise because, again, looking at the... Uh, landscape at the time. When Google started, it was a service provided primarily for students of universities because this was the audience that was actually entering the uh, online field. Everybody else was still using, uh, you know, encyclopedias and reference materials that were printed. And in many ways, people were afraid of using the internet, pushing buttons, which you do today without a second thought. Although I'm not sure that that's a, a good approach, especially not today. <laughs> but in those days, people were afraid you're going to push a button and your computer is going to explode. So um, this whole idea of being afraid to interact with the medium really uh, made us think about uh, the idea of play 
right? And I'm not saying the idea of play as being childish and being immature or not sophisticated, but the joy of play, the fact that when you play, you are, um, you have curiosity, uh, you are, um, you know, you take risks because you don't think about them. It's kind of in the spirit of play. And everywhere I looked around in the small Google office uh, that they had at the time, you know, there were lava lamps and there were Lego cubes and there were these primary colors. And I thought that primary colors, again, so important uh, in, uh, you know, the visual space, so important uh, when you are looking both in print, uh, when you're talking about additive and subtractive colors, and you start going from primary colors, because in math, which is the basis of algorithm that Google had uh, started with, Uh, you start with uh, very uh, concrete principles, very basic, and you start iterating from that. And it's fascinating that with colors, you start with these primary colors and you can build to infinite uh, colors. So the idea of playing with primary colors kind of fit into all of these different ideas that we're talking at the time. And when it came to uh, organize them, it became also clear that the interesting thing about uh, organizing information is that you can organize it by whatever means uh, that you find uh, that work for you. You can alphabetize, you can uh, do it chronologically, you can do it thematically. I mean, the different ways of organizing. Every single time that you organize something by these constructs, you will create some sort of serendipitous connection by putting these things next to each other. I remember as a little girl when my parents um, subscribed or had the Encyclopedia Britannica that I would love to pick up, I don't know, pick a letter, letter P, pick the P volume and open it up and find that you have, I don't know, parakeet next to paralegal, right? Two things that are completely unrelated, but they are related because the organization, that kind of construct, put them next to each other. So this kind of unexpected serendipity, the fact that you might be surprised by the results that you get, uh, and perhaps this one little item that shows up because of this organization is the one that you are looking for, it became important for us to not go into the uh, <clears throat> primary color uh, progression, but create something that was a little bit unexpected. And that tied in with the humor that the company had, the fact that they were not um, 
kind of square. They were not uh, trying to be kind of structured and like the Fortune 500 companies of the time. They were kind of irreverent a little bit. And they also had this little thing uh, which kind of played also with the idea of pushing buttons can be dangerous uh, to your health. It's the fact that they had this little thing, are you feeling lucky, right? Uh, meaning that, you know, do you trust us to give you, you know, a result yeah. uh, instead of kind of seeing all of this list. So that's the reason why we started with primary colors, but we decided to kind of um, mix them up a little bit. Wow, that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you for going into so much oh, detail. Sure. I really wasn't expecting that because I've read a lot of logo design history books and I don't think I've uh, read or seen a more in-depth explanation of the Google logo. So I'll probably never look at that logo in the same way again. Um, but anyway, to expand on this, when you was working on the design phase, I understand that you had other potential solutions that you d designed and discussed with the, the client. Um, but I'm really curious to know, was there any particular direction that you worked on at that time that you feel could have worked better than the solution that you came to or that you had more of a preference for that didn't perhaps get selected? Well, I think this is a, a kind of a complex uh question or perhaps complex answer, because I think that, again, as I said before, the whole idea of presentations is to continue the dialogue, right? Yes. And in many ways, there is always this balance that exists between when do you interject yourself as a designer with um, whatever it is that you bring in, both in terms of talent, ideas, opinions, and so forth, and the needs of the client. And the fact that at the very end of this conversation, the client is the one that decides which direction or which solution it fits them the most, right? And so you really need to balance those two. And many times while you are doing this and you're trying to stay very objective, because again, this you are a conduit for ideas, you are a conduit for uh, conversation, and you are a conduit to, uh, so that the process can move forward, both broadly and deeply. But of course, we fall in love with some things that we do, right? And we find that one uh, represents us better, or perhaps uh, the aesthetic is better, but I have found over the years, so first of all, I have to uh, do a side note here. I don't remember anymore uh, of all of these that were presented, which one I felt that was going to be uh the best one. And of course, I don't have a crystal ball that I can say if we had chosen this, what would have happened because there are too many unknowns in there. But I have to say that very often, I mean, I would say 99% of the time, even though perhaps during a particular presentation, it doesn't go necessarily uh, the way that I wanted it to go as I came into the meeting, 
And maybe I get frustrated because maybe something that I thought would work better is kind of discarded and we go in a different direction. It is incredibly rare that at the end of the meeting, I don't feel that this is now a great opportunity for further exploration and it broadens up my own perspective. So you really have to let go of, um, you know, the little of the big ego, whichever one you have at the moment, (laughs) right? Because at the very end, um, the client really needs to be uh, confident once they go away with a solution that this solution is going to work for them. Because my goal ultimately is that this is going to serve them for a very long time. Right. And uh, many times I will say, probably all the time, I like to say when I present something, I usually set them the presentation ahead of the meeting so that they can sit with it for a while. Uh, because you need to ruminate a little bit. You need to, uh, there are certain things that speak to you right away. There are things that you look at and you don't like, or sometimes you are even repulsed by, but all of those reactions are great opportunities for you to delve deeper a little bit into why something doesn't work or why something works, because again, this will become the kernels for the next iteration. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Fantastic answer. Now, obviously you created that logo when the company first started, the, the, the mission for the company was different at that time. And obviously, a lot has changed since then. And the company's now become one of the world's biggest companies. So I'm, I'm curious to hear from your perspective, since you created that original logo, what was your thoughts when the logo was redesigned in, in 2015? I think my first thought was uh, that it was time. Because... The landscape had changed so much from when we started uh, to where we were in 2015. We had new new viewing devices. uh, There were new applications and services. And all of those really required revisiting how this particular logo or the brand was serving and representing not only the current, but the future needs of the company, right? So we were incredibly lucky uh, to create a logo for the company when they had uh, one very specific product. The vision was much broader. The characters involved had uh, very specific personalities, and we tried to find incorporate all of that. And I think that that allowed it to really serve for such a long time. But in 2015, Google had diversified so much and it had so many different products, each of them being developed at different times, Uh, some of them developed in-house, some of them acquired different companies who came in with their branding and their user interface and all of that. And in many ways, I think that it was becoming really difficult for Google to, and again, I'm speaking from my, uh, it's my own perspective here, but I think that it was becoming difficult for them to really create a brand that really unified. I think that there were a lot of products out there that 
the customer, uh, the customers of these products didn't know this was a Google product. And I think that it became really important for the company to have a much more uh, pronounced and clear presence in all of those so that Google, again, was not only viewed as a, uh, a search uh, company, but it was viewed as so much more. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that the fact that they went back in and uh, really looked at everything uh, that they had in front of them and they were able to come back again very similarly to what we did originally and what every uh, brand designer, logo designer or designer does uh, I mean, after all, design is a uh, as it differentiates from from art. It's a utilitarian uh, profession, right? Or it's a t- utilitarian enterprise. We're here to solve a problem. Sometimes it's a very complex problem. Sometimes it is a, a very difficult to define problem. That's what makes it fascinating. But either way, you really have to look at everything and create a language that has a grammar that allows you to really conjugate all these verbs and, uh, you know, have conversations about your brand that really makes sense. So, yes, of course, it's hard to uh, see the child that you created go to college, but come on, it's, it's time. I just want to take a short break to tell you more about FreshBooks, who has sponsored the Logo Geek podcast, and without them, it simply would not be possible. I remember when I started out as a designer, taking on my own projects, I was creating my own invoices in InDesign, and I was keeping a log of my money in an Excel spreadsheet. That was fine at first, but with more projects, it was just taking too much time and tracking expenses in Excel was becoming quite messy and confusing. But then I tried FreshBooks and it changed everything. Invoices that used to take, you know, five, 10 minutes now took around 30 seconds to create. My profits and expenses were also nicely organized too. And I I just immediately felt so much more organized and more professional in the process. If you're not yet using an accounting software, I highly recommend that you give FreshBooks a go. And if you're listening now, you can get a free 30-day trial and there's no strings attached. You don't need to enter any credit card details to try it out. All you need to do is head over to freshbooks.com forward slash logo geek and be sure to enter logo geek in the how did you hear about section to get started. Now let's get back to that interview. When you designed the Google logo, the business was a startup, but now it's become one of the world's most profitable business. And the logo that you designed is now recognized by almost every single person in the world that uses the internet. That type of thing very rarely happens. So now that you've been through that experience, what does that type of thing do for a a, a designer? What what does that do for your career and what does that do for you as, as an individual? 
Well, it's. Uh, I think it's interesting. Um, it. I think it varies from from person to person. Um, you know, success can be a great thing and and uh, can be also a not so great thing. I think that uh, all of us uh, creative people uh, should not sit down and kind of um, bask ourselves in the laurels of the past. Right, our challenges are always ahead. And um, in many ways, I was uh, very lucky that um, I designed this logo when the company was small. And as a matter of fact, uh, nobody uh, kind of knew that I had done it. I mean, it was part of my portfolio. So when I was asked uh, to speak with different companies and clients and whatever it is, it was going to, it was one of, uh, but it was not uh, what was kind of presented first. I think that it was not un- until the 10th anniversary of Google when uh, suddenly it became big news. Uh, they were talking not just about the company, but they were talking about the brand. There were a lot of uh, interviews and there were a lot of articles written. And that's when people started getting really interesting, interesting in uh, more a kind of a historical perspective. So it was part of the history. And uh, of course, thanks to the interwebs, uh, you know, these stories got propagated. But on an aside, uh, which I find funny in, in the sense of um, how success uh, works, uh, because it's always in the eye of the beholder. It's really yeah. not for me. But uh, I have kind of an interesting background. I was born in Brazil. I, in my teens, my parents moved to Israel. So that's where I went to undergrad. And then I came to the United States and I did graduate school. And uh, my parents have a long history of Eastern Europe and South America and all kinds of things. And as these interviews came in from, from uh, publications all over the world, each of them claimed the connection, right? So, uh, if it was the Polish press, I have, I'm of Polish descent. It's for an Israeli press. I am of Israeli descent. If for Brazilian press, it's Brazil. So it was, kind of uh, really humorous that this is all about other people. It has nothing to do with me because my work was the same work that I did and I do even when nobody is looking, right? And yet when uh, you put a spotlight on it, it kind of develops this life of its own and I just sit and observe because <laughs> it now has absolutely nothing to do with me. <laughs> That's a really good way to look at this and, and also very modest too, but I totally understand. Uh, anyway, you briefly started uh, to talk about your background then, and I'm aware that you studied uh, master's in design at Stanford University and you eventually became a professor there too, which is incredible. Can you share with us a little bit more about this time and perhaps some of the important lessons that you uh, learned during that experience? Right. So uh, I came to Stanford because it was an interdisciplinary program. Um, I have a uh, my 
undergrad was in architecture, which is interdisciplinary by definition. But uh, I was really interested in in a lot of different things. And uh, I had, um, before I came to Stanford, I had been working in my own firm uh, in a field that did not exist in Israel at the time, which was uh, translating architectural uh, buildings to uh, the people who actually use them. Uh, Because while I was studying architecture, it became, uh, at least again, in my opinion, that um, we architects are um, really interested in when we present our buildings, it's the facades, it's the bird's eye view, although I don't know anybody who has wings that can see buildings from bird's eye view. We have cross sections of buildings. Again, I don't have x-ray vision. I don't know what's on the floor (laughs) above me or, you know, three uh, offices to the left. And so I really, and when you present models, you have people, but people are just there for scale. And I really thought that, uh, you know, people get lost in airports, they don't get to their planes on time because they don't know where the gate is. And this whole idea that I could see coming out of the uh, the uh, Swiss, uh, the Basel School of Design uh, was in architectural graphics. And so I tried to speak to architects. They were not interested in that. I talked to graphic designers. They're not interested in that. And so I created my own firm and did that for a while. But my feeling was that um, I was like the Baron of Munchausen, you know, pulling myself by my own ponytail. Uh, I was making up stuff as I went along. I didn't study this. And I really wanted to come to a place where I could get mentors and I could really understand uh, design more broadly. And Stanford uh, fit the bill for a lot of different reasons. And uh, when I came to the program, I thought that I was actually going to uh, continue my studies in uh, this area of architectural graphics. Uh, but I found two interests, and that was part of my letter of intent and probably why they hired, not they hired, they accepted me in the first place. But uh, two things became really clear to me the minute I came to Stanford, uh, and I'm digress just for a minute. Uh, The program at Stanford, because it's a Master of Fine Arts, there's no PhD, uh, you have a year where you take courses. uh, And the courses you take are entirely up to you. They can be entirely within the design department. They can be uh, taken from all other uh, departments. And then you have a year where you do your master's project. Mm -hmm. And when I came in, I found that I was coming back to school after being out in the field working for about five years. And um, I found it so joyous to learn again that I just took every class I could find in every department I could find. (laughs) And this was the first time that I really enjoyed really being in a 
university environment. I was doing way beyond what I was asked to do because I really was so engaged, right? And so, of course, the fruits of my labor were that I uh, was giving more assignments to do and uh, kind of picking the interest of the people I was working with, but it was really because I couldn't get enough. I just wanted more and more and more of it. And uh, they were very uh, accommodating in my taking all of these classes, right? Because it was way beyond what I needed to take. So that's number one. Number two was the fact that when I came to the master project and um, it became uh, really clear to me that uh, this idea of going into architecture graphics is not what I wanted to e experience and experiment with for a year-long project. So my first thought was, do I give up that intent, right? That was the intent I came with. And the fact that I allowed that to go and started experimenting with other ideas, I found that incredibly, be incredibly valuable because sometimes we get set into something even when we set that to ourselves and that prevents us from being open to other things. And that's how uh, in the first, I don't know, couple of weeks, perhaps first month, I started playing with a lot of different ideas. And somehow I came into this uh, playing card idea. And that was because here as a product, and again, a reminder, Stanford was this interdisciplinary program between the art department and a product design. Mm -hmm. So we had a lot of engineers uh, in the product design side, and we had very few uh, students from the art side, which is where I came into. And I was looking for a product because it was something I haven't done before. And I wanted a product that was incredibly versatile. And I love this idea that you have a deck of cards, children can play, adults play, you played for fun, you played for money, people have died playing cards in the Wild West, right? Yeah, you play solitaires, you play with other people. I mean, the fact that you're fanning and stacking the cards uh, and, you know, they're so incredibly visual and so personal because you hold it in your hands, that was kind of the departure Um mm the departure moment. But in terms of what I learned, uh, there was a point after the first, uh, Stanford is a quarter system. So after the first quarter, when again, we did our presentations, uh, the, the professors came in and they said that they wanted us to work on different projects. So every quarter would be a different project. And, um, you know, I, I went home and I thought about it for a while and, um, and I came back and, uh, I stood with the panel. I think there were five people in the panel at the time. And I said to them, you know, uh, I've already worked, um, in the field. I know what deadlines are. I know what it is to do a project. Uh, from beginning to end, what is specifications, what are constraints. And I really need this time 
to explore. I, I really want to give myself this whole year to explore this subject. And as a matter of fact, I am not even promising you that I'm going to have a product at the end. And, uh, and they said, well, but if you don't have a product, then, you know, perhaps you don't graduate. And I said, it's the risk I'm going to take. I really need to do this. So uh, the and what's interesting, again, in not sticking to your plans is that I did do a lot of experimentation and really went incredibly broad into all kinds of things. But it became clear to me at the very, very end of the year that unless I gave people in the same way that I enjoy holding cards, that I gave them deck of cards to hold and to play with, that I wouldn't have the whole circle. And uh, I ended up with three different decks that they could actually play with. But I think that the lesson here is sometimes you really need to take the risk and stick to your guns even if the outcome could be catastrophic. Because I think that unless, like, again, uh, from Tarot, uh, the fool, you know, how he has one one foot towards the precipice. <laughs> and to, unless you take that leap, right, uh, you never know what, what might happen. And I'm ex- extremely happy that I did it. But I have to say, I really take my hat off to my professors at Stanford who allowed me to do that because it would not have um, looked good uh, for them. Uh, to have to have such a catastrophic failure, and the fact that they allowed me to do it uh, both gave me the confidence to do it, and um, and actually ended up being uh, kind of a win-win for everybody. But of course, at that time, we had no clue that that's what's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I actually noticed on your website that you actually worked on a deck of cards for Adobe too, uh, which I assume was one of the outcomes of doing that as well. So could you tell us a little bit more about that project? Sure. So when I uh, finished my uh, my playing cards project. And one of the things that I did during that time was actually, you know, uh, at that time, all I had was a dot matrix printer and uh, a Mac 128K. <laughs> you know, it had it had an external disc where I put a you know my little floppy 128K. So you know, I was working with Mac Paint and. Um, and it was all pixelated, and I would print in black and white. And then I learned that somewhere you could get ribbons uh, that were in color, and that's how I I did all of those things mm-hmm. and created colors and and so forth. But I also did uh, some of the cards were actually monoprints, and some of them were done uh, kind of in a more traditional method. But I was really, I really started looking uh, in those days at the technology. And uh, David Kelly, who was one of my professors at Stanford, David Kelly, who is the founder of IDEO, and uh, he, at the very end, because he knew that I was so inter- interested in the technology, he wanted to connect me with uh, Adobe because they had just, uh, you know, introduced this new language. Um, and uh, PostScript that allows you to uh, really have these beautiful curves and you're not pixel, uh, you're, you're not, 
uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, constrained by the pixel, right? Mm-hmm. You can start uh, doing things that are beyond that and laser printers were coming up. So I had a conversation uh, at Adobe with uh, Russ Brown, uh, who has gone, uh, still at Adobe doing fantastic things with Photoshop, which was not a product at Adobe yet. And uh, we were talking about this new product that they were just introducing. So this was uh, 1988. I had just finished my master's and they were talking about introducing Adobe Illustrator and they had a huge barrier to entry. And that was that designers didn't want to have anything to do with this new technology because computers were going to make all of us look exactly the same. The individuality of designers was going to go out the window. So they were going to introduce uh, Adobe Illustrator at Comdex. Comdex is a really big um, happening event convention that happens in Las Vegas. And he said, how about you, you, you create a deck for Adobe using Adobe Illustrator? So at that time, I hadn't used Illustrator yet. And uh, Illustrator was uh, very rudimentary, was uh, black and white. Uh, you could printed colors if you did your own color separations and you knew how to do that, but it was black and white and there was no preview. You worked in what today is called work mode. You only had thin lines and you had to envision what they would look like once you give them you know, a way to the strokes and so on and so forth. But I started looking at that a little bit and I came back to him and I said, you know, I, I would love to do this. Don't get me wrong. I was super excited about it. But if the issue that we have right now is that designers are concerned that they were all look the same, this is a great opportunity. A deck of cards has four suits. How about we have four designers designing each of the, so each designer would design an individual suit that will showcase that we're not all going to look the same if we go through the illustrator process. And so the Adobe deck did exactly that. We had four different designers and each of us had our own style and our own take and our own approach in using that software. And that became a huge hit for Adobe. Uh, first of all, you go to Las Vegas, you want to carry a deck of cards home. <laughs> and it also uh, was, uh, you know, it spoke more than a thousand words how uh, this software is actually going to allow designers to keep their uh, to keep their unique approach, and it's just going to be one more tool in their toolbox. So that's how that uh, that deck came came to be. Mm, it's such an amazing project to be involved with, and that your idea helped to show the capabilities for what Adobe Illustrator could do. Um, so you may have helped. Um, it become what it is today. Right. Well, I wouldn't say that that helped it become <laughs> what it is today in the same way that I wouldn't say that my logo has mm. helped Google become what it is today. But I think that it is um, satisfying to know that you are part of this complex story and yeah. you are one of the pieces in the big jigsaw pub puzzle that allows that story to be told and to be told successfully 
right? So I think that that is uh, the role here is that, and I think that that's also something that's really important uh, for everyone who is entering a professional field, especially today, is that we as individuals in our fields or even having colleagues in our fields cannot solve the problems uh, that are placed in front of us today. There are very complex, they are interdisciplinary, and they really demand that you have conversations with everybody who is part, is another piece of the puzzle, right? Yeah. So we need to interface with all of them. So we can't just stay, if we are coming from the art field, we cannot just stay within that. We need to allow our... Um, uh, kind of extremities, if you will, right, in our mesh of understanding, those extremities need to connect with people who perhaps don't speak our language. So we mm -hmm. need to figure out ways in which how we can connect to them and how we can connect to the ones that are going to produce it, how are we going to connect to the one that are going to use it, and so on and so forth. So it's really important to know that regardless of how big you get and how good you are in your field, you're only as good as your ability to interface with the other people who also play really important part in this overall process. Mm, that's very true. Um, now we're nearly at the hour mark, so I have one last question for you. Sure. And it's a question I've asked almost every guest on this season so far, so I'm really curious to hear what you say. Um, so if you could travel back in time and offer your younger self just one piece of advice, what would that advice be? Well, that's, uh, that's also interesting. And for me, every question always has a little bit of a complex answer. <laughs> apologize for that. No, it's good. It's interesting. So I'm actually going to start the other way around. And uh, I would like uh, my younger self, uh, I'll tell you what I would like my younger self to tell my older self first. And uh, when I started uh, everywhere, and I, I told you a little bit of the story that I started my business in Israel where I was working in a field that I had no business being in because I've never done it before, mm. is that uh, when I started with my very first project, and I did this the whole time, is that every single time, and it came from a place of uh, inferiority, I have to say that, because I was cognizant of the fact that I really didn't know anything. And that was, I listened. Every single minute, every single meeting, every place I interacted, I really listened and I paid attention. And by doing that, I got to know the people and understand the motives and understand what it is that they know and who it is that I need to reach out to, to learn something. Uh, and... I think that listening is one of the most, if not the most important skill. And the reason why um, I am saying this uh, to my older self is that sometimes, uh, you know, I'm a very outspoken person. I, I don't know if it's genetics or not, but that's the way it is. And I speak my mind and sometimes I find myself speaking perhaps a little bit too soon. And I really need to remind myself that regardless of how much I know, there's still a lot I don't. So 
listen first. So this is my advice uh, that I really want to keep in mind from my younger self. Mm. Now, if there was something that, um, you know, today, and we touched on it a little bit, that I would advise my younger self is really not to be arrogant. I think that youth has a fantastic attribute, and that is arrogance. We're going to live forever. We know everything. We're going to change the world. We know what's better. Um, And with listening comes another thing, and that is uh, respect. Uh, And not just respect the people who are above you, who perhaps, you know, are there uh, so that you can get something from them, uh, but really respect everybody who's around you and particularly the people who you think are uh, below you. Uh, because again, as I said before, we are all part of this puzzle. And I have this little anecdote. My very first job, my chutzpah job is I reached out uh, to somebody, a really big developer in Israel, because again, neither architects or designers wanted to hire me for this thing. And I heard that he did these big projects and uh, he didn't do things by the book. So I found out his number and I called up and uh, in my big um, arrogance, I asked for an hour meeting. They didn't know me from Adam and the secretary. (laughs) pretty much just uh, hung up. And I kept on calling and uh, kept on calling. And uh, I couldn't understand why I was telling why he needed to meet up with me. And I really thought that I needed to get to him because she didn't know anything. And when I finally got my two-minute meeting with him, (laughs) (laughs) not the one hour, and And later on, uh, found the story. Uh, She was, um, you know, almost like an adopted daughter to him. She was incredibly protective of him, and she really wanted to make sure she respected his time, and really wanted to make sure that whoever he met was uh, worth his time. And I had no uh, idea and no concept of somebody else having other matters of importance in their own circle. And I really came in thinking that really only what I had in mind mattered. And I think that that, again, uh, causes very, very narrow vision, uh, this tunnel vision that can be really detrimental in the way that you interact with people, right? So uh, I think listening and respect are incredibly important uh, in every piece of work that you do. Yeah, absolutely. I I totally agree with that from my own experience as well. Uh, Well, Ruth, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you and uh, thank you so much for sharing all of your stories with us. I've really enjoyed them and I really hope the listeners will have done too. Uh, So Ruth, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute honor to chat with you. Well, thanks so much, Ian. Thanks for uh, having me on your podcast and uh, it was a pleasure to me. I did a little bit of reminiscing. I'm glad you enjoyed it and uh, thank you so much you're very welcome that was such an amazing interview and I'm still amazed how much more I learned about the Google logo that I didn't know before so Ruth thank you again for coming on and for sharing all of that with us it was absolutely amazing so if you'd like to learn more about Ruth Kedar head over to her website kedardesigns.com and kedar is spelled k-e-d-a-r 
Alternatively, check out the show notes for this episode, which will include links to Ruth's website, social media platforms, and anything discussed in this interview, along with a full transcription too. To find out, just head over to logogeek.uk forward slash 4.10. If you'd like to discuss this episode with me and over 6,000 other logo designers from around the world, join the logo geek community on facebook which is totally free and you can find it just by heading over to logogeek.uk forward slash community alternatively i've just started working on something called logo geek plus which is a new community away from the distractions of facebook where we'll get together on live group calls to discuss topics around logo design so if you'd like to come in and join in with those conversations it's only ten dollars a month to join to find out just visit community.logogeek.uk This is sadly the final episode of season four, but I'll be back again in a few months time with another season jam-packed full of interviews around logo design. Hopefully you've enjoyed this season and if that's the case and you'd like to say thank you in some way, the best way to do that will be to write a review on iTunes. It's always really amazing to hear from listeners. So if you do have a moment to spare, that will be very much appreciated. So until next season, keep working hard and hopefully I will see you in the Loki Geek community.